Matthew chapter 26, I'll begin reading in verse 30. And when they had sung an hymn, they went out into the Mount of Olives. Then saith Jesus unto them, All ye shall offend all ye shall be offended because of me this night, for it is written, I will smite the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered abroad. But after I am risen again, I will go before you into Galilee. Peter answered and said unto him, Though all men shall be offended because of thee, yet will I never be offended. Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee that this night, before the cock crow, thou shalt deny me thrice. Peter said unto him, Though I should die with thee, yet will I not deny thee. Likewise also said all the disciples. Then cometh Jesus with them unto a place called Gethsemane, and saith unto his disciples, Sit ye here while I go and pray yonder. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and began to be sorrowful and very heavy. Then saith he unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful, even unto death. Tarry ye here, and watch with me. And he went a little further, and fell on his face, and prayed, saying, O my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. And he cometh unto the disciples, and findeth them asleep, and saith unto Peter, What? Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that ye enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And he went again the second time, saying, O my father, if this cup may not pass from me, except I drink it, thy will be done. You may be seated. Who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death, and was heard in that he feared, Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. Hebrews 5, 7 through 9. In keeping with the last number of times that I preached here at Weavertown, uh, we'd like to look at another mountain experience together here today. And you guessed that we're thinking about the Mount of Olives this time. The Mount of Olives is just to the east of the city of Jerusalem. It's a low mountain range that extends for a couple miles. And there's lots of, back in Jesus' time, and yet today, I understand, there's olive trees galore on the slopes, growing on the slopes, Many of them old olive trees. Um, the Mount of Olives is mentioned a few times in the Old Testament. We think of David and Zechariah. Uh, but it really comes into focus, the mountain does, in the New Testament. Especially with the life and the experiences of the Lord Jesus. And so we're thinking about Matthew 26 here today, not Matthew 22 anymore Daniel, but now Matthew 26. The Mount of Olives was a favorite retreat of Jesus. You can see that in Luke 22:39, And it was a launching pad for the triumphal entry, which happened just a few days before the events of Matthew 26. 
It was the preparation ground for the crucifixion as we see in the text here in Matthew 26. It was the site from which Jesus ascended to heaven and it's the site where when he comes, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives in that day, Zechariah tells us. As I think of all that and think of what is happening here on the Mount of Olives, I read what Maurice Roberts has said about this time. The history of the world here reaches its highest moment. There never was anything comparable to this moment since the world began, nor ever would be. Gethsemane and Calvary, taken as one event, are the culmination of the ages. They are the climax of all history. They are the apex of the destiny of the world. This is the greatest thing that was ever done or could be done, that God in human nature would give himself a sacrifice to reconcile the world to God. What could be greater? What could be conceived of as even approximating to the glory and the majesty of so great an action? All the angels of heaven doubtless held their breath with astonishment as they began to see what was involved for Christ in the garden and on the tree. And I'm also thinking of something that Audrey Shank wrote, um, published in the Sword and Trumpet a number of years ago. And she says, thinking about the events of Matthew 26. The suffering of the Lord Jesus in Gethsemane is too sacred for words. It is holy ground. Artists have tried to paint the scene. In their pictures, the Lord is kneeling. A halo shines round his head. The atmosphere is peace. These pictures fall far short. They do not show the cackling demons. They do not show Satan himself in the horror of one last desperate effort to entice the Lord to bypass the cross. They do not show the blood sweat on the Savior's face. They do not show him lying on his face in agony. They do not show the burden of the world's sins as they bore down upon his holy body and soul. As I think of what was transpiring here on the Mount of Olives, here recorded in Matthew 26, as well as the other Gospels, I feel more insufficient than usual to talk about and think about and explain and enter in the events and the experiences of the Lord Jesus here. Maybe that's one reason why in the next few minutes I will quote from other people, maybe even more than usual. And the, certainly uh, the goal for a sermon like this is that we together uh, see and notice and learn from the parallels of our Christian lives. Now, we're not Jesus. No, 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 no. But there are parallels that hopefully we can point out and that you can see and appreciate and be bettered from. Um, I'm especially thinking about four phrases that Jesus speaks here in this text. Four of them. And as we go through these four, it would be neat, I think, if you would notice and remember that I think that point one and point four kind of sync and correlate. 
I think that points two and three do the same, are kind of intertwined and synced. See if you can remember that. One and four, two and three. The first phrase that I'm thinking about, do you see it in verse 31? All ye shall be offended because of me this night. Jesus said that to the disciples. Offended. All ye shall be offended. That verb offended means, the dictionary would say, feeling or expressing hurt, indignation, or irritation, or affected disagreeably. And we, that's how we think of when we use the word offended. What you said kind of offended me. What he did offended her, and so on. I think that Peter and the disciples whom Jesus was speaking to here and speaking about understood that maybe just a little bit different. Offended, that word, in the original means more made to stumble or to stumble and fall away. The Hebrew language, uh, a bit more picturesque than, than English, often uh, uses word pictures. Think of that. To be offended means to stumble and fall. All of you are going to stumble and fall, Jesus told his disciples. And interestingly, Peter says, Oh no, not me, certainly not. Such overflowing confidence that Peter had of himself. Isn't that amazing? Such overblown and overbold confidence that he had in his ability, in his strength, in his person. Such a self-confident person that he was uh, and that he would loudly say such words like that in a setting like this um, maybe doesn't surprise us quite as much because it was Peter, but maybe you're thinking about the last phrase in verse 35. Peter was not alone in this, but all, the, all 12, 11 or 12 disciples said that. And then I think about myself and others uh, in, in our time and place. And I have said and shown my pride at various times in life. I can, I can think of different time, things that I have said or done or that others in my hearing, in my experience have said or done. And if it's all right, I'm not going to mention any of those just right now. But the title, I wanted to mention the title earlier. What's to be experienced on Mount Olivet? What's to be experienced on Mount Olivet? Peter and the rest of the disciples experienced pride and arrogance and self-confidence and self-assurance and self-sufficiency. And before the night was over, before the next 24 hours were gone, were gone, they had stumbled and fallen away, stumbled and fallen, just as Jesus had prophesied and, and said that very night. And I'm thinking of verses from the Old Testament that they were familiar with and that we are familiar with. Proverbs 16, 18. 
which I can't even quote right now. Pride goeth before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. Pride goeth before destruction. And again, notice those words, destruction and a fall. All of you shall be offended, Jesus said. All of you will fall away. And, and that includes the capacity of us Christians in the 21st century just as much as it ever it did the disciples of that time. Another verse in Psalm Psalm 118.8 in see if I can find that real quick like and the interesting thing to me about this verse Psalm 118.8 it is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes do you remember that just before they left the upper room and went to the Mount of Olives they had sung a hymn and we know that that hymn was the great Hallel of Psalms 113 to 118, something like that. So these men had just sung that. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. But they apparently forgot that. Wonder if we ever do. All ye shall be offended. That is a typical human response to the goodness and the salvation uh, uh, that the Lord Jesus provides, all of you shall be offended. Let's move now to verse 38, uh, the second point, and notice that Jesus said, my soul is exceeding sorrowful, even unto death. Luke twenty-two forty-four talks about how that he sweat great drops of blood. And uh, Got Questions website, of which I got a, f a few thoughts, as well as uh, Study and Obey website, says this about those great drops of blood. And we're thinking about how he was exceeding sorrowful even unto death. And you will understand, you medically aware people, that I might not pronounce this word right, but let me try it. Hematro... Hematotrosis is a rare but very real medical condition that causes one's sweat to contain blood. The sweat glands are surrounded by tiny blood vessels that can constrict and then dilate to the point of rupture, causing blood to effuse into the sweat glands. The cause of hematotrosis is extreme anguish. And we could ask the question, why was Jesus so anguished? Why was Jesus in such excruciating sorrow? And someone has said that one reason, one reason why Jesus was so extremely anguished here was certainly because he knew everything that was going to happen. He could see that and knew that from eternity past, and that often makes things worse. If we knew, know that something terrible is going to happen and know, and I just quote again, if Jesus did not know in detail what was going to happen to him, he would not have been so troubled. But he knew every scourge of the whip, every hit with the rod, 
every prick of the crown of thorns, every hateful insult, every hammer of the nails, every bruise, every cut. He knew it all. That was one reason, certainly, why Jesus was so anguished, but there was a second, more excruciating reason why he was so excruciated. And again, I quote from uh, some writing that I found, crucifixion, number one, why was it so terrible? Because he knew everything that was going to happen. Number two, crucifixion was considered to be the most painful and torturous method of execution ever devised. And it was used on the most despised and wicked people. In fact, so horrific was the pain that a word was designed to help explain it excruciating, which literally means from the cross. There was a third reason, and I think the ultimate reason why Jesus was in such excruciating pain here on Mount Olivet, well before the physical pain ever began, and that is explained in 2 Corinthians 5.21. Where Paul, years later, said, For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that he might be made the righteousness of God in him. And I remember Irvin Hershberger talking about this verse, I think, in Calvary Bible School when I was a teenager years ago. And the NIV, in in a footnote, also mentions that, what he would have said, what uh, Irvin would have said, that it means when it says he hath made him to be sin for us, it means he hath made him to be a sin offering for us. A sin offering which takes us back to the Old Testament and the various offerings and sin offerings that were offered, they were a type and a foreshadow of what Jesus did once and for all on the cross. A sin offering makes us think of the scapegoat and the other offerings there. Why was Jesus so excruciatingly in pain in Matthew 26? Kind of a rhetorical question. We understand and can only imagine the physical pain that was to come, the mental anguish and the spiritual implications of all that, and we haven't yet started to talk about how awful it was when, Jesus, when God the Father actually turned from him and Jesus died alone on the cross. Exceeding sorrowful. Exceeding sorrowful. Verse 37, he began to be sorrowful and very heavy. Verse 38, my soul is exceeding sorrowful. Let's move quickly to the third point and we find that in verse 41, watch and pray that ye enter not into temptation. Watch and pray. Watch and pray. Let's especially think about praying. John Phillips says that watching sights the enemy and praying fights the enemy. Prayer is warfare. Prayer. And I ask the question, why or how did Jesus pray? I have three questions here. How did Jesus pray? For whom did Jesus command prayer? 
and for what should we pray? As I think of these questions, I am reminding myself a little bit of Joseph Peachy. Remember how he often preaches, he asks questions and then explains them. I, I appreciate that about him. How did Jesus pray? Well, verse 39 would indicate that he prayed relationally. What is it about verse 39 and what Jesus said there that reminds us of relationally? Well, it's the first three words, right? Where Jesus said, Oh, my Father. Oh, my Dad. Oh, my Daddy. Really. Relationally. You know, our God, whom we address in prayer, is not some far-off deity sitting on a throne that doesn't isn't worried and concerned about us, but he is our Heavenly Father who is right down here with us. He is our Heavenly Father down here with us that we can have a relation with. He is our Papa. Thank God for that. Uh, Jesus also prayed intentionally at the end of verse 39, let this, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Let this cup pass from me. Can you please, Heavenly Father, intentionally? He wasn't above pouring out his needs and his desires and his thoughts and his wishes to God. I think that we do well to do that in our prayers as well, relationally, intentionally, and also persistently. Verse 44, he prayed the third time saying the same words. There is such a thing as vain repetition, but there is such a thing as praying persistently. Jesus talked about that in a parable, the persistent widow. And yes, Jesus prayed relationally, intentionally, and persistently. I think he, God, his children do those three, pray that, those three ways, relationally, intentionally, and persistently. So that's how Jesus prayed. Let's think about for whom did Jesus command prayer in verse 41, so in verse 39, he prayed for himself. And in verse 41, he prays for others. Watch and pray that ye, the disciples, enter not into temptation. Not only for himself, but certainly and especially for his disciples. And by extension, by extension surely, his disciples yet in the 21st century, even the ones sitting here. Why? So that they enter not into temptation. There is aspects of prayer like, that, like praise and intercession and supplication, but we do, maybe I don't do that enough, actually pray that I enter not into temptation. Pray that ye enter not into temptation. For what should we pray? Well, to avoid temptation. Oh. Uh, Part of being able to overcome temptation is simply to, part of that is simply to earnestly and honestly pray and thank and ask God to deliver us from temptation, like the Lord's Prayer also indicates. Watch and pray. As I think of that, I think again of what Audrey Shank wrote. Uh, 
The crowd of soldiers led by Judas was coming up the hill. They came armed to the teeth with all the authority of the Jewish leaders and of Rome behind them. But the Lord Jesus, who had fought the battle and won the victory on his knees, went forth resolutely to meet them. The three disciples, who had not prayed, panicked. And someone has also written, Jesus walked away from his prayer differently. He was no longer distressed and troubled. He walked away as a man on a mission. He was resolved. He was assured. He was confident. He knew his father had a plan, and he knew it was a perfect plan. How could he be so calm? How could he have such patience and restraint? How could he be silent when Pilate threw question after question at him? It's simple. He prayed. God gave him peace. We may worry when the lies of Satan swirl around our minds, and we can experience peace when we pray and allow God to remind us of the truth of his word. Listen to this now. Hear this. God may not give you what you ask, but... God may not give you what you ask for, but he will give you what you need to win the battle. Thank God. And I'm hoping that you're thinking of the correlation between point two and point three. Point two, exceeding sorrowful. Point three, watch and pray. Even for Jesus, watching and praying took care of his exceeding sorrow and excruciating circumstances. Certainly that has something to say for us today. Indeed, does it not? Exceeding sorrowful, watch and pray. And I thought it was interesting that just in the last week or so, um, I, in my inbox appeared a blog from Ray Pritchard, and he wrote this which I think is fitting as we think about watching and praying. Pray with your eyes open or shut. Pray standing or sitting. Pray out loud or silently. Pray with others or by yourself. Pray with hands folded or arms uplifted. Just pray. Which brings us now to the fourth point that I'm thinking of. It's in verse 2 as well as verse 39. Oh, my Father, if this cup may not pass away from me except I drink it, thy will be done. Verse 39, not as I will, but as thou wilt, Jesus said. Maybe one of the shorter sections here, but I think the hardest ones for Jesus, I think I'm saying that right, and certainly for us in our pilgrimage here in life. The most vital, the most important, the most imperative is this. Thy will be done. Jesus said, your will, Heavenly Father, be done. And we should take time just to notice that that is in contrast to the extreme of what Satan said 
Well, you could look back in Isaiah 14, verses 12 to 14, and in those three verses, Satan said, I think, five times, I will. Jesus said, thy will be done. I will is the very essence of sin. Think about that. What is sin? Well, it's pride and it's anger and it's, we could list all kinds of things. But the very essence of sin is selfishness. The very, the very essence of sin is really peeled away and down to the core, it's I will. Patrick Reard has said, the addition of it is, the addition, if it is thy will, is neither a limitation imposed on our confidence nor a restriction laid on our prayer. It expresses rather a feature of true prayer, of true prayer and an essential component of faith. The real purpose of prayer, after all, is not to inform God what we want, much less to impose our will on him, but to hand ourselves over more completely in faith to what God wants. The purpose of prayer, even the prayer of petition, is living communion with God. The man who tells God then, thy will be done, does not hereby show himself a weaker believer, but a stronger one. And I say, well said. To quote from Audrey Shank, just one more time, a little poem that someone wrote. And this speaks to me. Laid on thine altar, O my Lord divine, accept this gift divine for Jesus' sake. I have no jewels to adorn thy shrine, no far-famed sacrifice to make, but here within my trembling hand I bring this will of mine, a thing that seemeth small. But thou alone, O Lord, canst understand that when I yield this, when I yield thee this, I yield my all. I think it's time here in these closing moments to try to answer the title. What's to be experienced on Mount Olivet? Well, hopefully not that we are offended and that we, are, that we stumble, although that is our human experience. But what's to be experienced on Mount Olivet? Maybe even the Lord brings excruciating and exceeding sorrows into our life, often does. He knows exactly what he's doing when he does that. Certainly, what's to be experienced on Mount Olivet is that we watch and pray, that I do and that you do. And ultimately, that we say, that we pray, that you do and that I do, and live that his will would be done. When we give him his will, when we give him our will, indeed we give our all. Remember that correlation. The disciples were offended. They were made to stumble because of their pride and arrogance and self-confidence. Jesus, point four, 
on the other hand, shows us the exact opposite of giving his will once and for all and yet again to God the Father. Point two and point three. Exceeding sorrowful led to, and then watching and praying led to Jesus being strengthened and ready for the cross. And he is expecting that we also bear our cross until he comes again. Will you kneel with me for prayer? Our Heavenly Father, I thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, your only begotten Son. Thank you that he was willing to leave the shining courts of heaven and come all the way down to earth, be born as a baby, live among men perfectly in every sense of the word, and then to die for us, die the death of a cross. Thank you that you have highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That ultimately is coming one of these days when that will ultimately be done. But Lord, I pray that it would be the experience of every person here, every heart here, that we would give ultimate glory and honor to Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Thank you that he was willing to give up his will, his will, Heavenly Father, his everything. And I pray that in real and even increasing ways that we would be doing that every day, giving our will, our wants, our wishes, our preference to Christ Jesus, our Lord, for his honor and his glory and for the good of the kingdom of heaven here on earth. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for your word. It's forever settled in heaven. Thank you, Lord, most of all for Jesus. And we pray in his name. Amen.